Welcome to How to Scale, the podcast by Frog Capital focused on helping software companies to successfully scale up. For more than 10 years, we have developed a solid understanding of the common challenges that scale-up companies face. With our group of operating partners, who have learned from years of experience, we have created the Scale-Up methodology, which brings together insights and tools to help improve companies' probability of reaching sustainable profitability. Each podcast looks at a different challenge that all companies will face on their way to scale. My name is Jens Düring. I'm one of the senior partners at Frog Capital, the investor focused on purpose-driven European software companies in the scale-up phase. Over the last 20 years, my own personal journey has led me to work in this space, challenging the status quo to identify better ways to tackle problems. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, sign up for the podcast at frogcapital.com podcast. One of the great value drivers in the recession is acquisitive growth because you can actually acquire companies either for consolidating your market, for product expansion, or for geographic expansion to further create value at a better price than you would normally be able to do it. These acquisitions come with some challenges. You need a different skill sets on the one hand, and you need a very diligent preparation. Here at Frog, we actually have a toolkit out that talks a bit about preparation. But when it comes to the skill sets, I'm honored to have one of our former CEOs here who's done it several times. Today, I'm joined by Michael Kent, who has been recently the CEO of Azimut that got acquired by Papaya Global. Before that, he was the CEO of Small Worlds uh, and has previously had some own experience as well. Michael, welcome. Great. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me on. Would you mind introducing yourself by giving us a bit more of a background about yourself, particularly within an acquisition context? Sure. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've set up three businesses in what what is now come to be known as, as fintech, um, financial services and technology. And uh, yeah, I've been involved in M and A pretty much since the beginning of my career. One one of my first jobs was at Arthur D Little. I was on the um, transaction services team. We used to do sort of commercial due diligence pieces right in the heart of the of the tech boom uh, of '99. Um, you know, coming up with sort of very detailed pieces of work on and working out whether very inflated business plans were real or not in those days. Um, I, I went to INSEAD. Uh, after that, I went to News Corp, um, where we were buying a lot of companies, um, looking at different assets. My first business actually I set up was um, called Small Financial Services, and that was that was a, a M&A um, roll-up. So a private equity backed roll up, but, um, where we bought 14 companies in, in five years. Um, so quite a lot of mostly good companies, not all of them. Um, so, and really learned by doing there. Um, and then subsequent to that, obviously, Salapasmo, um, thankfully backed by, by Frog, uh, among other investors. And, uh, yeah, we looked at a bunch of acquisition opportunities, but we also ultimately got acquired, uh, which is sort of the other side of the M&A equation. Um, and that happened quite recently last year. I'm very pleased with the outcome. Yeah, and then so are we. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be involved with you on that journey. And, and you bring along here a, a pretty unique skill set in that you have both seen hyper growth on an organic basis. And on the other hand, create a growth on an acquisitive uh, story and uh, growth path. How would you say uh, the different skill sets required? How different are they? M&A is, is, is often an attractive thing to do, but it, it's, it's a skill set and it's a muscle group that most companies don't have. And 
I very often see you have to form yourself a, a separate um, hived off deal team who are, while somebody continues to run the run the company, early stage businesses, growth stage, scale stage businesses are still very, very fragile. And you take your eye off the ball for, you know, a week or two, you can you can find yourself getting into trouble. Uh, the average M&A process can take anything from three months to sort of 12 months. Um, and actually having the, the very best minds in the business out of um, action, focusing on something else can be absolutely critical. It's, it would in a lot of the M and A opportunities that I've looked at, you see you see the sort of the, the core team getting distracted, the rest of the business suffering, um, and ultimately, often M and A doesn't happen. You know, right until the moment that you sign the deal and you transact, you don't actually know if things are going to go through. Um, so you can find yourself in a in a bit of a t- tricky situation. So I always counsel entrepreneurs, or, um, you know, to to either. Buy in the help that you need in the way of advisors, and you can sort of get fractionalized um, CFOs um, and, and people to help you do it. It's quite often a good way to a good time to lean on your investors. Um, it was certainly during the um, the Asimo process, we were we were relying on you and, and Stephen and, and the guys at Frog to sort of offer advice and help us with the, the sort of DD prep and that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just think you really have to focus on you know what what are the necessary skill sets. It's not a skill set you might necessarily have in house, and also keep most of the team focused on just running the business. Um, so I think that's probably one of the core lessons I've, I've had. Actually, at Small World, we, we split ourselves almost completely. We had a deal team, full-time deal team. I mean, we were doing a lot of deals, two, three deals a year. Um, and we had a operational team, a guy we hired from Travelex and, and Nick Day, who was ultimately running the business. Um, and Ricky and myself would... Uh, we'd go out, we'd originate, we'd raise financing against those assets that we were buying. And then we would run the businesses for six to nine months um, after the transaction. That's probably the other lesson that is is super important, I think, is actually, you know, it doesn't all finish when the when the deal gets signed. Um, that's obviously when the bankers get paid and the investors um, take you out for a drink and everyone feels good about stuff. But it's it's the it's the six months, the um, or the hundred days, the six months, the nine months, the twelve months afterwards that are absolutely critical on whether an acquisition will will, will, will generate what you thought it was going to. And, and let's be honest, most of them don't, um, and largely that's because people have a great plan for for buying a business and, and then they fail to execute that plan after they own it. Particularly at small worlds when you made 14 acquisitions over four years or five years even, what were the most surprising learnings for you on that journey? So, so we were buying some some pretty interesting assets um, and we were we were doing a lot of the heavy lifting ourselves. And actually, I think that's great. So I, I, I don't really, having said, you know, try and get in the skills that you need. I don't really believe in, in outsourcing or, or trusting the accountants um, or the or the bankers to, to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. For, for you. So we were reconstituting um, financial statements from bank, account, bank, bank numbers, basically, because we didn't really trust the numbers that we were getting given. And, and in a lot of cases, that, that proved to be quite quite smart move um so doing a lot of the heavy lifting really getting under the skin of the businesses um understanding it yourself i think is 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 very important um we we whenever possible and this is i guess another key learning is it this is a people game you know it's it's all about the the human relationships that you're able to to um to form with other founders with the management teams of of businesses that you're either selling to or being um or, or acquiring and you know it's too often um, you can sacrifice, uh, you know, negotiation points on the altar of, of, of human relationship. And I just think often 
the most important thing was just whether people were able to you know feel good about an acquisition and um, there are lots of different ways of structuring things we didn't have a standardized template we, we always thought we would have and we always um you know we always had to depart from it but the most important thing for us was, was keeping those relationships with the with the with the management teams um culture came into it an awful lot and of course in in a, a small world we were buying very international businesses um so we, we were generally buying from um you know uh entrepreneurs who were who had historically migrated to the UK or to America or, or to Europe um, so it was a very diverse cultural group um, we, we we sort of spent a lot of time building relationship capital I mean we looked at we looked at 100 businesses and transacted 14 so you know we, our, we, we were we were trying to maintain a, a, a very high bar but even then you know stuff went wrong um, and I think if I had to categorize why stuff went wrong, um, it would be because we didn't focus on the, the relationship. Um, so whenever possible, obviously, if you're buying something, uh, make sure that you you treat the people um, who are sticking around with respect. I think the, there is an issue whenever you know a company gets bought or sold. It's a very uneasy time for for everyone, um, and, and people are nervous, um, and you you have to sort of meet that challenge head on, um, and be very straight with people, and, and and try and build as much relationship capital as you as you can early on. Often there are synergies that you're you're trying mm -hmm. to realise. So things are you know things are precarious, and you're you're taking out costs. That's often a, a, a sort of a key way that you sort of realise value in in the acquisition. But trying to be straight with people, trying to reassure those that you and identifying very early on, you know, two often the diligence just focuses on the numbers sort of focuses on the the legal agreements and the commercials um it doesn't actually focus on the on the most important thing which is where's the talent in the business who actually runs the business and you and i uh both know that you know titles mean a lot but they don't mean everything and yeah. often there's people that you need to identify who actually you know are fundamentally core to how the business runs you identify those people you, you you form a relationship with them and you and you make sure that they they come um and, and, and join your organization that's that's super important as well that's quite rich already because there's obviously quite a lot of things that can go wrong and uh, uh, as you mentioned the human element is the one that's probably the most critical for long-term success here um, how do you spot when things are not working out as you expect them to work out um so I guess there's there's <laughs> there's a few things um, you you get it depending on the market uh, environment and I guess this happens less so now but if if you start seeing people leaving um that's a that's a that's a pretty big um red flag um and you will always get some attrition yeah. um I think that's that's kind of expected but you should really have a view before you you start seeing people um you know leave leave the combined entity you should have a view who you want to keep and who you don't yeah. Um, and actually we, we kept a list, um, of, of who we absolutely felt was, was critical. We would often incentivize those people way beyond, um, you know, anything that they had before, because yeah. again, for those sort of six to nine months after a, a deal has been done, those people, the transfer of knowledge hasn't happened. Those people are absolutely critical. So we, we, we tended to lock people in, um, quite hard. And if, if, if any of those people left, we, we, we really sort of, that was a big, that was a big warning sign to us. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, you've got to get out there um, and, and, and talk to people. Uh, I remember we bought a business in um, in Spain uh, that was losing a million pounds a month. Um, we had to restructure it very heavily. Um, Nick and Ricky uh, 
volunteered me to to go out and run that business for <laughs> for a period of a year and i was very unpopular you know we took the headcount down by 50 percent um we we changed the pricing structure we tried changed incentive um structure and, and that's in a in environment in a cultural environment like spain where people aren't used to you know sort of maybe hard more hardcore restructuring than um that, that we would we were having to do to, to sort of get the business back to profitability um and that was really tough because people didn't really want to talk to me. Um, you know, I was pretty unpopular in the offers. Yeah. But I, you know, I had to keep at it um, and, and, and keep talking to people and, and make sure that, you know, people did know that why we were doing what we were doing, but also would talk to me as to what, what they thought was good and bad about what we were doing. Um, but that was, a, you know, that was a tough one. But, you know, you've got to, you've got to front up to these things. Did that uh, lack of popularity last or were you able to overcome that? Um, I think eventually um, we, we we found our people um, yeah. within the organisation, um, and uh, yeah, the, the, the used to joke that uh, I would never want someone else making a cup of coffee for me because I never know how much how many people had spat in it for the <laughs> for the first couple of months. Um, but no, eventually, yeah, it, it, it settled down. Um, we we identify, and uh, this is also important. Um, we. Uh, identified a couple of the senior management team in that business, made them part of the combined exco. Um, so they were, you know, there were, people saw that there was opportunity within our organization. Mm. Um, too often, um, and we've all seen examples of this. What happens is you sort of the whole scale clear out of the of the senior management team yeah. from the acquired company, uh, parachuting in a bunch of new people, and and that's just, you know. If, if you're really buying a, an asset and, and changing the entire management team, why are you buying it in the first place? Yeah, exactly. So you've got to really think hard about that. Um, and, and, you know, traditionally when you do a deal, there's a, there's a financial due diligence, there's a commercial due diligence, there's a legal due diligence. There's very rarely a people due diligence. Um, and, you know, I would think actually that's probably the most important thing, particularly the sort of small cap, um, you know, M&A. This is not financial engineering that we're all getting into. You know, we're in scale up te te territory. Um, you're buying capability, but more than anything else, normally you're buying people. Yeah, and, and I'm surprised that with that as well, I have to admit, we have a people due diligence piece for every investment we make. Yeah, and um, it is by far the, the biggest uh, risk and opportunity if you want. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember when you were investing, you were actually the, the, only, the only guy who, who phoned around all the people I'd used to work with. Um, not just the people I told you to phone. So yeah, yeah. no, I, 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 I believe that it's true. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's what we did too. Um, you know, if we were, if we were going to work with somebody, um, and we're going to acquire their company, we tried to keep the entrepreneurs engaged for at least a sort of 12 to, to 18 month period at minimum. Um, our sell to them was certainly at small world was we'll take all the complicated hassly stuff off and just let you yeah. get on with selling, uh, going out, being front of house and, and, and growing the business. We, um, I did, I worked at WPP for a while and I learned a lot about, you know, the earnout, the power of the earnout from, um, Sorrel and his ilk. Um, and we, we tried to do things like that. But yeah, absolutely. The, the, the sort of, I, I'm always amazed how many people invest in businesses without, without checking references. And I'm also amazed how many entrepreneurs take money from investors without yeah. checking those investors out. It, it's still, you know, it, I've been telling people to do it for the last, you know, 20 years. I still don't. I think it's fair to say this, that the industry is evolving, but there's still room left for improvement. And uh, everybody recognizes that people are the, the most critical thing, but very few have a plan, have a plan and a structure around that. And the incentives uh, are clearly uh, a very powerful way uh, to secure the key talent if you get it right. 
if you get it right. If you get it wrong, it contributes to uh, major problems. Yeah, I'm quite right. So if you're looking at the key lessons, the key advice you would have for somebody who is looking at his or her scaler for the first time. Um, so we, we, we touched on some of them already. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess the, the, the first thing is be very clear what you're buying. Yeah. Um, what, what hole are you, you filling? Um, now, a lot of businesses get bought to try and distract the investors from what's going on in the core business. Um, now, I'm not saying that's a completely invalid strategy. I see it happen in the public markets all the time, but be really focused on what it is you're buying, why you're buying it, the rationale, um, you know, not, not for your investor, not for anyone else, just for yourself. Um, and I think that will guide your, your diligence process and how you choose to, um, you know, focus on things. Um, and then I think ultimately what you'll probably find out is, is that whatever you are buying and whatever, whether it's, you know, revenue or it's a capability or it's market access or, you know, a, whole, a very long list of, of things that you can get in, in my sector, fintech, it's, it's often regulatory. Yeah. Um, it's licenses. It's, it's the ability to access certain markets. It's, it's sort of integrations or relationships with, um, suppliers or banks. And that's kind of, that's often the things that people are, focus on but remember that all of those are linked to people you know yeah. the relationship with the regulator is linked to people the banking relationships are very often um held by individuals in the company um the the the, the revenue or at least how the revenue is booked depending on the sort of b2b or, or b2c is, is particularly in b2b is very much focused on you know individuals who manage those those yeah. clients so you've got to identify the, the sort of the core people um you know, entrepreneurs by their very nature, and I'm, I'm one of them, you know, are very focused on the upside. It's good to have a, a foil, um, and, and have somebody in the room. Actually, some of our deals, we, we, we got the CFO in, and we used to call him Dr. No. Um, and, and Ricky and I, um, and I think you know Ricky, he's, uh, he's, he's yeah. definitely, um, his glass is, is three quarters full at all times. <laughs> um, but, you know, we would, we would get Tony to, to sort of challenge us on, on all of the underlying assumptions um, and we'd dial them down. And he said, well, that did get us to better decisions. So yeah. A couple of deals that were on the cusp we ultimately ended up not doing. And I'm, I'm pretty happy that we didn't, to be yeah. honest. I think just think about after the deal. And, and it's that first time of the days and that's that first sort of three-month, six-month period. Appoint somebody who is responsible at board level uh, um, and on your senior management team for for a successful integration or delivery of of, of the of what you've said is is going to happen from this deal and, and they need to be really senior um, it can't be any everyone's part-time job to make a, a an m a transaction um, or the post merger integrations as management consultants call it um, of a of a of a transaction successful it has to be somebody's primary responsibility for making it happen that person needs to be you know one of the brightest and the best in, in your organization um they need to be fully empowered by you um by the board um to, to to really sort of run things because stuff goes wrong you know um that particularly on the sort of the cultural side of things can be difficult um the, 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 there will be clashes. There will be hundreds of decisions that need to be made almost on a, a sort of daily or weekly basis um, about organization structure, about how financing is going to be run, you know, lots and lots and lots of little decisions. You need to have somebody who who's really empowered to make those 
make those decisions. You know, that's again, you know, it can't be 20% of your time to make this M&A thing happen. And it also sends the right signal to both the acquired company and your existing organization that this is super serious. It's something you're going to make yeah. work. You're betting, you know, not only are you betting the company's resources and, you know, your investors' money on it in many cases or, or stock or dilution or whatever else, you're actually, you know, you, you spent, you're putting real resource and, and the brightest and best on it. So I think that's just, that piece is super important and it gets forgotten nearly all the time. Um, people move on to the next bright and shiny thing um, and then wonder why the wheels fall off. And it's, um, you know, inevitably, if you look at yourself, you can you can work it out. I think particularly important in some of the, what we see in, in fintech, which is people buying businesses in other jurisdictions, you know, the, the, the business culture in the UK is different to the business culture in North America, although they're kind of quite similar, different again to the Dutch or the Germans, or, you know, in our case, we sold to an Israeli company. And there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of cultural dissonance um, and friction <laughs> um, that, that came through in, in that transaction. And, you know, I, I think, Richard and myself and they now were, were able to sort of crowd control some of it. But, you know, that, that was, you know, it, it, was, it was tough and, and we needed sort of the top people in the organization really focusing on making it work. Yeah, and I think there are two points for me to pick up on. The first one is when you assemble your team and you, you name your CFO, Dr. No, you want to have diverse voices on that team. Yeah, so that's one to, to make sure you evaluate this opportunity from all sides. Yeah, and then that's from, from your departments. You want to have people from tech and product on there. But to have your CFO on there who should bring some integration skills with him is, is actually a critical element of that, yeah, I think. Absolutely. The other thing, actually, I haven't really touched on this, but you, if you, if you decide that you're thinking about M&A and you want to acquire, you think about acquiring things, it, you, you should be very systematic about what it is that you'd like to acquire. Yeah. So, you know, actually most companies that I've done M&A with, we started off with a, you know, here's the universe of potential businesses that we might be interested in, even if they're sort of quite left field or very well capitalized. Or, and, and, and actually going through that thought process with a sort of a small core of people thinking about, you know, what each of those businesses would give you, trying to work out what their revenue or their, you know, their um, EBITDA, negative EBITDA in some, yeah. some certain cases. But, you know, what their, what their um, positioning is, that's actually a really good exercise um, for, for a team to go through anyway. It's best, it's a, it's a good use of half a day of offsite time for a senior executive team anyway, because there, there really is no one asset. Um, and if you're embarking on an M&A strategy and, and you shouldn't just, you know, there's always going to be opportunistic deals that come up um, and, and sometimes they can be great. Most people who do successful M&A have a list of targets. They formulate the relationship with those um, management teams over months and months, months, years and years in, in, in my case, um, when it came to Asimo. And, you know, again, that just solves the people piece because, you know, you can't, build up trust over the course of a weekend or a couple of weeks when somebody's in a process and in distress if you actually know the entrepreneur in question if you've had a drink with them you know at whatever your sort of conference is um, for your particular sector once a year and you've just kept up with them you swapped information you swapped stories and you know cried on each other's shoulders because ultimately you know a lot of these companies whilst whilst we all compete we um we get on pretty well at a, a human level as well and if you have those relationships that's that, that's what pays off when you know something does eventually come to pass mike this has been very interesting we've learned a lot about how to acquire companies in this current environment. We typically close our podcast with three key takeaways. So can I ask you to 
summarize three key takeaways for aspiring entrepreneurs looking for acquisitions out there. Okay, absolutely. Um, so I think firstly, just know what you're buying, know why you're buying it, and then having a very clear plan for how you're going to achieve what it is that you want to achieve after you've bought the company. I think the probably the second thing, appointing very clearly somebody to execute on that is is super important. So it doesn't all happen when the ink um, dries on the on the deal documents. It all, all the value gets created in the in the months after that. Um, and then I think the third, probably the most important thing um, that I constantly think about is is this is all about the people. So think about the people relationships. Think about the cultural dissonance or or not. Um, think about how you're going to identify the really best people in an organization that you're acquiring or the people that you need to build a relationship if you're getting acquired and 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 just work on the people side of things. that's that's super important. Fantastic. There you have it. Three key pieces of advice from somebody who's done it successfully before. Mike, it's been very much a pleasure to have you here today with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, sign up for the podcast at propcapital.com slash podcast. And finally, thank you for listening. We welcome all feedback, questions or topic suggestions for us to cover in future episodes. So please email howtoscale at frockcapital.com. Frock invests in purpose-driven European software scale-ups, making a positive impact on society. We look for businesses who have reached product market fit and are generating over 3 million euros of annual recurring revenue, what we see as a characteristic of the scale-up phase. It's a stage where businesses are continuing the path of positive growth, a purpose-driven route to sustainability and profitability. Our own purpose is to help scale the most exciting purpose-driven software companies in Europe. We do this with both Capital and our in-house team of operating partners who work closely with all the companies we invest in to overcome the inevitable challenges scale-ups face.